Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and also Chris Smith. This week we're preparing for takeoff. We'll be investigating new technology to track where aeroplanes actually are in the sky. There's also a new way to see inside a jet engine to monitor when it needs maintenance. And is air travel spreading diseases around the Earth? Plus, the story's making the headlines from the world of science. The technique that could see doctors growing tiny balls of cells from your cancer in a few years' time. Why the planet Mercury is a mystery. And from the Beatles to Björk, how has pop music evolved? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Cancer isn't just one disease. There are hundreds of different types, from breast to brain and prostate to pancreatic. Making matters more complicated, it's also becoming increasingly clear that cancer is as individual as each patient is, and it needs treating in a much more personalised way. But how do doctors find out what drugs an individual cancer is most susceptible to and the likely prognosis? When our scientists in the Netherlands have developed a way to grow in the lab tiny balls known as organoids of a patient's cancer, and these can be used to test treatments before they go anywhere near a patient. Anya McCarthy, the Science Information Officer at Cancer Research UK, took CAT through the study. At the moment, the main techniques we use to evaluate how well tumours will respond to drugs are cell cultures and something that are called xenografts, where they transplant cells from patients into mice and watch how they grow. And these two techniques are fundamental to all basic science research, but they have their limitations and their flaws. With cell cultures, the problem is we don't necessarily get to see the whole tumour or look at all the different types of cells within the tumour. So it's a very almost one-dimensional look at what's going on and what's happening to cancer cells. What have the researchers done now that's different? What they've done in this really interesting paper is they've taken cells and samples from patients with colorectal cancer and they've taken both cancer samples and samples of normal tissue and they've grown what are called tumour organoids. And the best way to think of these is almost as a 3D model and it's a way to look at lots of different aspects of the tumour that will give us a more maybe real-time look at how drugs respond and what's happening. So how many patients were they looking at? They looked at 20 patients. They got samples, normal samples from 19 of these patients. And interestingly, they also had actually 22 tumour samples because in two of the patients that had cancer, they had two separate tumours. So altogether, they looked at 22 tumour samples and 19 normal samples. So they're growing these little organoids in the lab. And then what were they doing with them? So they looked first to see how long they could grow them for and whether they could grow them. And then the next thing that they wanted to look at was, can they use this model, these organoids model, to figure out how well tumour cells will respond to drugs? They're taking the organoids, so the tumour samples and the normal samples, and they're doing what's called DNA sequencing. So they're reading the entire DNA or genetic code of them. And they're also looking at another molecule, which is the RNA expression, which allows them to look at the gene level. And then they're using this information to see which genes and which proteins are mutated or faulty. And then they'll base their drug screen on this to see do specific drugs work properly to target these? Because that would tell you what drugs might work for this patient. Exactly. And the ultimate aim that they have is to give a more personalised, more targeted treatment and therapy to the patients. Also, what they want to do is create a biobank where they'll have these samples stored so they can be used in the future to test further drugs as they come along. So in terms of what they found in this paper, did it work for them? It did work. And they found that there was consensus among their findings with other literature. So they found similar things to other people. And it does show that by using these organoids, you can identify what they call molecular marks or molecular signatures that will tell you how well a tumour will respond to certain drugs. Now, the key thing with treating cancer is you need to do it quickly. You need to find out what's wrong with someone, what sort of cancer they have, which drugs to give them. Is this the kind of research that will be in a meaningful timescale to get those answers for doctors? In its current state, it's not clinically usable or it's not able to be used in the clinic. But the main aim will be to hone the technique and to get it working in a more quick way, in a quicker manner. And basically, they acknowledge themselves that it takes a bit of a while for the organoids to grow. So that ideally, they'd speed up this process and they'd make the whole thing a bit more clinically applicable is the best phrase I can use. 
this has just been used for colorectal or bowel cancer. Do you think it could work for other types of cancer too? In theory, I think it absolutely could. I think there's no reason to say it couldn't. But it's important to be aware that the trials and the studies will have to be done to make sure that it can accurately represent and depict what's happening in all different cancer types. But I don't see why, if tested and used properly, it couldn't give us the same information about different types of cancers. One of the things about this organoids technique is that it means that you don't have to use mouse models, animal models at all. Could something like this completely replace the use of animal models in cancer research? No, I don't think it could completely replace the use of animals, but it could absolutely be used in parallel. It can give us some other vital information, but animal models are a necessity because they allow us to look at the whole system, the lymphatic system, the blood supply, absolutely everything. So we could glean some more tailored, more targeted information from the organoids that we can then use in animal models, but they won't be eradicated completely. Anya McCarthy, who's a science information officer at Cancer Research UK. NASA's Messenger Probe's mission to the solar system's innermost planet, Mercury, has now ended. At the end of April, the spacecraft, which has been orbiting Mercury for more than four years, slammed into its surface at a speed of about 9,000 miles per hour. We'll have left behind a substantial crater, but more important is the academic legacy of the mission. Space scientists are now preparing to launch a new probe to Mercury in its wake. One of the researchers on this project is the Open University's David Rothery, who explained to Chris what Messenger has achieved. Messenger was launched in 2004. It had a cruise of about five years. Then it flew past Mercury three times. On Messenger's fourth approach to Mercury, it crept up sufficiently slowly that it was able to be captured into orbit about the planet and mapped the whole planet. Image of the surface, got spectroscopic data of the surface, got x-ray data of the surface and probed the magnetic field in quite some depth as well. Can you tell us a bit about uh, the anatomy of Mercury? Mercury is the smallest planet, larger than the Moon, but smaller than Mars, but its gravity is about the same as that of Mars because it's a much denser body. Its core, we calculate, must occupy about 80% of its volume, and it's got a relatively thin, impoverished, rocky shell around the core. And is that core made of iron in the same way that Earth's core is made of iron? Yes, the core is made of iron, but there's something keeping the outer part of the core molten. We know that's the case because Mercury generates its own magnetic field, like the Earth does, but Mars doesn't do it, the Moon doesn't do it, Venus doesn't do it. Mercury's got a fluid outer core acting like a dynamo to generate the magnetic field. And on top of that, as I said, we've got this relatively thin zone of rock And we used to think that was because Mercury had been hit by some enormous impact, which had blasted away the outer parts of the early planet. But now we've got there with Messenger, we've discovered that the rock of Mercury is rich in volatile elements. Those are things that would be lost in a violent collision. And we've also got volcanic vents in many parts of Mercury, created by explosive volcanic eruptions. Now, you don't get an explosive volcanic eruption unless you've got something which can come out of the magma as it nears the surface and expand as a gas to drive the explosions. We're a bit flummoxed about Mercury, frankly. We don't know how it formed. And what's the temperature like on the surface? Well, by day it's near the equator. It exceeds 400 degrees centigrade. But at night, because the nights are quite long, the nights last 88 Earth days, um, at night it goes below... Minus 150 centigrade, so it's a planet of very great temperature extremes. And what have scientists been able to learn in the dying days of Messenger? It's been closer to the surface than ever before. It was getting down to five kilometres before they used their remaining fuel to get it slightly higher. And that gave the most detailed images we have of Mercury. We can learn from that about the small-scale craters that have affected Mercury. And the more we know about the cratering history the better we can try to work out the age of Mercury's surface. And has it enabled scientists to nail any really big questions? It's probably given us more big questions. We used to think it's a cinder that close to the sun, the rock's been burned away, it's been hit by something which has flung off most of the rock, but it should have lost its volatiles. Now we realise that hasn't happened. We're thinking Mercury may be formed elsewhere, somewhere further from the sun, richer in volatiles, And maybe to explain the large core, a story that came out last year is that Mercury wasn't the target of a giant impact, it was the impact. Mercury careened into the Earth or Venus 
stripped off a lot of its outer layers in the process. So Mercury is now being described as a, as a hit-and-run impactor. So any plans on the part of the European Space Agency or others to go back and take a look at some of the big questions that, that Messenger has now enabled us to ask? Well, very much so. We have a spacecraft almost completed called Bepi Colombo. We'll be launching um, in 2017. We'll assume our science orbit about Mercury April, May 2024, so that's nine years from now. And um, the questions that we have to seek to answer have been strongly modified by what Messenger has taught us. One thing we'll want to do is find the crater that Messenger made when it, it crashed just last week. It's going to have a long wait for that data, but it's very exciting when it comes. That's planetary scientist David Rothery from the Open University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientist. Still to come, how radar works and do cheap flights cost the earth? We'll be looking at the health and safety of the aviation industry. Plus, music to your ears, how rock and pop have evolved over time. Before that, though, 98% of us would want to be told if we were found to be carrying a gene linked to some kind of serious underlying health condition. That's the results according to a study of 7,000 people that was carried out by Anna Middleton from the Sanger Institute. Now, these findings are important because by 2017, 100,000 people just in the UK will have had their genome sequenced. And as researchers probe and pick their way through that genetic information, then genes associated with certain diseases are going to come to light. And I suppose, Anna, that uh, people all around the world are also being sequenced in much the same way. So we have a big volume of data being assembled and we have a big question as to what we're going to do with it. Yes, absolutely. And people around the world are taking part in genetic and genomic research and labs in universities across the world have thousands of samples belonging to research participants. And it's only really relatively recently that we've been starting to think, well, should we be actually feeding back data to those people that gave the samples to start with. Is that really what motivated you to do the study? We're, we're generating a lot of data and there isn't really a policy or any kind of precedent in place as to how to handle it. Yes, I guess traditionally there's been quite a disconnect between the research participant and the researcher and maybe the research participant has given their sample, handed it over to research um, and the researchers just get on with it. And it's only been, so recently we started to think, well, actually there's an awful lot of health-related data in there should we be more connected to the research participant and thinking, you know, think about sharing some of that? I suppose one of the big questions with anything genetic is that whilst I personally may want to know genetically what my risk profile is, I have two parents. Mm. I have brothers and sisters potentially. If they are who I think they are in mm. terms of their relationship to me, once I know something about me, I actually know something about them mm. too. And yeah, there's an ethical consideration there. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, any data that would be shared should be done in a clinical environment with um, suitably prepared and uh, trained health professionals who can deliver that information and think about the impact on the individual, but also their family and their children and their parents and their siblings. Do people realise that, though, when they go for a genetic test or when they answer things like your questionnaire? You, you surveyed 7,000 people. Would you like to know if you have a risk of some kind of underlying disorder? Were they conscious of that? consideration because I must admit until I began to think about your work and the questions you're asking I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. Yeah, We were very aware of needing to explain this really carefully and so what I did was I worked with a filmmaker to create 10 short films that sit within our survey and the films describe the ethical issues raised by genomics and they explain you know this data is relevant to lots of different people do you still want to know and what we found was that people just actually felt quite excited by genomic data they they felt that it could have have some value for them in protecting their health. It could be useful to them and they wanted to be part of the research process. We did a little sort of mini survey on a very small audience, not the 7,000 you looked at, uh, at a live event we ran in Cambridge, actually with David Spiegelhalter, who is Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk at mm -hmm. Cambridge University. And he asked the audience, OK, if you could be told how long you're going to live for, would you like to know? Now, all the kids in the audience said, absolutely. I want to know when I'm going to die, therefore how long I've got. 
all the adults in the audience said no. And he said, isn't it interesting that when you're little and things seem very far away, you want to know the absolute black and white scenario. But as you get older, you're much more comfortable embracing a bit of risk. Mm. Actually, we found something different. So we did actually look at lots of different age profiles and we found that the young and the old were just as interested in data. But where we did find a sociodemographic difference was between men and women. And we found that men, irrespective of where they lived in the world, were more likely to want access to more data. And it was actually the women who were more cautious and said, actually, you know, I'd like to know some things, but not others. Like uncertain data, no, not interested in that. Will there be, off the back of your study, some kind of framework put in place then so that when we do research and we take a sample from somebody that that we do have some kind of ethical obligation or some kind of relationship going forward with them where we can pass on information? Yeah, I mean, the findings of our research um, hopefully will be adopted into policy. And what we've actually found is that although people say they want data, they also put a value on that data. So they don't actually expect it to be delivered to them at all costs. So we did say that in a research setting, if the research question and answering that was um, devalued or compromised in some way by having to provide data to you, would you still want to know? And people said, no, focus on answering the research question or forgo our data. So focus on doing good quality research first. 98% is a very high high number, isn't it? Were you surprised? Very surprised, yeah. I was expecting far more people to say, no, not interested in this. And it just shows that people had a perceived value of the importance of genomic data. And whether that is real or not is something else, but they thought there was something useful they could do with it. Anna, thank you very much. Anna Middleton from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And her research was published in the European Journal of Human Genetics. Pretty much everyone enjoys listening to music, but are you the kind of person who believes pop music went downhill after the Beatles? Or do you love bopping along to a bit of Rihanna or maybe some rap? How about you, Chris? What's your favourite music? I'm pretty much rooted in the 70s. I have to say I'm a bit of a Pink Floyd fan and a progressive rock fan, actually. I quite like very complex music. I'm not very into these sort of relentless drumming, throbbing, bass beat type tunes. Well, I'm more of a 90s music kind of girl, love me a bit of grunge, do also like a bit of hip-hop and love the Beatles. But that's just the two of us here in the studio. One person who's taking a more scientific approach to discovering how musical tastes have changed over the years is Matthias Mauch from Queen Mary University of London, who's been analysing thousands of songs from the US Billboard Hot 100 chart to track the evolution of popular music. We were interested in in analysing the evolution of popular music, so we needed a data set. I was working at Last.fm, so we had access to a lot of uh, recordings, and we also had access to the charts, the Billboard charts. So we put the two things together, and we had this beautiful data set of 50 years of uh, US charts, uh, singles charts, Hot 100, 17,000 songs that we simply had on our hard drives. Now, what do you do with it? Luckily enough, uh, I I specialise, as some other people around the world do, in music informatics, and this is exactly our business. So we are scientists who develop new algorithms to extract information from music, and that's exactly what we did. So you weren't listening to 17,000 songs. You basically made a computer listen to it and tell you, what does this sound like, what's in here? That's exactly right. Trust me, we listen to a lot of them, but uh, not nearly 17,000. So, uh, yeah, this this sort of study is only possible if you use computers. What sort of things were you looking for? What were you analysing the songs for? Yeah, so we were analysing the songs mainly for harmony and timbre. Harmony, we analysed chord changes. So I was really interested in trying to understand how the songwriting in terms of chord changes had changed. And uh, in terms of timbre, which is made like sound colour, so we could identify dark or aggressive or percussive sounds. What sort of uh, patterns do you see in the data? We do have some beautiful waves. There's some other patterns. We've got like a, a, a camel-like, a two-humped pattern that's, um, that is aggressive guitar-y music and that was once prevalent in, in the uh, early 70s or around the early 70s and once around the uh, late 80s. So that was um, kind of the, the early rock and then it comes, it comes again as, uh, well, stadium rock. And yeah, we've we got beautiful patterns. And uh, so, well, I've talked to you now about these, these timbral patterns. So let's have a look at some harmonic patterns. So to me, the, the fascinating one is the, the decline of the dominant seventh chord. Now, for your listeners who are not musically inclined, so dominant seventh chords are, are, are very important in, in blues and jazz. Um, so in blues, p- particularly, they give the dissonance in the dominant seventh chord, gives it a sort of sturdy color. And these chords seem to be vanishing in the charts. So even by 1975 or something, they'd almost completely gone and never came back. 
Were there any chords that replaced them? Yes, there certainly were. So that we can see in the around 1970, there was suddenly this new kind of chord. It was not exactly new, so it had been used before, but not not very much. And then suddenly, uh, as funk came into the charts and s- slowly turned into disco, these minor seventh chords were suddenly uh, prevalent. And and indeed, if you listen to um, uh, Night Fever by uh, by the Bee Gees, you'll you'll hear lots of these this dangly uh, minor seventh chords. So they they came in and 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 stayed pretty much for a long time. Later, around in in the nineties, there came this new kind of harmonic style that came into the charts, and we looked at it and we were wondering what it was, and it was. No harmonic, so that was that was quite exciting to us, and we saw that you know suddenly rap and hip hop, uh, these songs dared essentially to ha- to be to uh, do away with harmony altogether, pretty much, and uh, focus on something completely different. Did you see music evolving, or were there just step changes where it became very different? This is one of the fascinating things that. Uh, to me are very fascinating what i don't really make the news very much because it seems so normal but it's actually what you say is is kind of the reason why we call it evolution right because and um, what we see is that charts don't change like just like that from day from one year to the next they don't change uh, they might change rapidly but there's though there's always some some lag to it so the, what what happens is that people take they they usually take something that exists recombine it and change it and then make new music so it's very rare that the music is created from a vacuum if it, if it's possible at all people basically like listening to things that are kind of familiar they might know something but then it's got something new in it that's that's coming from somewhere else obviously uh, composers and songwriters don't write the same song again except sometimes they try to <laughs> but but you know if they were to write exactly the same song then obviously no one would buy it once more right some people would say well don't make music like the old days and it's all rubbish now was there any algorithm that could tell you about the quality of the songs whether they were actually any good yeah, we wish we could. Uh, so we don't actually have that. So we have to admit that our algorithms, uh, so musicologists can analyse few songs really well, and we can uh, analyse very many songs not quite so well. So we, our measures are sort of more crude. Um, but what we can say is more generally, perhaps, about the whole charts. So we can't really say how good one song is. Well, we can say how diverse, you know, how exciting the chart as a whole is. So, you know, would you would you see many different sounds in the chart? So if you randomly turned on the radio on a chart, in a chart show, would you get, you know, nice, excitingly different ones? That's turned out to be quite an interesting exercise because we realised that in the mid-80s, that was much less the case than in other other eras. So the charts that we have now and the charts before the 80s were a lot more different, different types of music in there. That seems so. Of course, our study went on only to 2010. But yes, so it seems as if uh, there was like quite a lot of diversity in the charts, then it dipped in the 80s and then it came back. Partly because because rap added this fresh note, and you know you had had a new kind of style in the charts that made them the whole the charts as a whole more diverse and perhaps interesting. Do you have a favourite decade, or did you even find a favourite year where you're like, yeah, I love all those songs? Oh, personally, I think I'm quite I quite like the seventies. Actually, yeah, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a seventies person. I think. Like you, Chris. That's Matthias Mauch from Queen Mary University of London. <laughs> You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Kat Arney. Right now, there are something like a million people airborne around the Earth aboard aeroplanes, and each year, three billion people board those planes. On the basis of passenger miles travelled, the airline industry is therefore one of the safest forms of transport. Largely, that's down to technology and attention to detail. So this week, we're taking a look at how we keep planes, passengers and the planet safe. Now, aircraft are complex machines that fly tens of millions of miles over their lifetimes. But what does it take to keep an airliner running smoothly? And how can you tell when it's in need of a service? The key component of any aircraft is its engines, and the world leader in the sector is UK-based Rolls-Royce. They make about half of the world's jet engines. But rather than selling their engines, they retain ownership of them and effectively rent them to aeroplane owners. And this also means that Rolls-Royce take responsibility for monitoring and maintaining them. Philip Garsed went to Rolls-Royce HQ in Derby to speak to Matt Burns, who heads the company's operational service desk. 
We're here in our customer training centre. We're stood in between a pair of Trent XWB engines. These are the engines that power the Airbus A350 aircraft that uh, successfully entered into service in October of last year with Qatar Airways. This thing is absolutely massive. At the front of it, there is a fan that is much bigger than I am tall. It's made up of many enormous fan blades. It would take me 10 paces to walk down its length, and it's covered with pipes and wires. It's just an incredible piece of engineering to look at, and it completely dwarfs me. They're a pretty impressive beast when you get up close to them. And of course, we're seeing it here stripped of its outer cowlings, so it isn't the, the glossy painted exterior that the travelling public may be used to seeing, but it's uh, nonetheless impressive. Can you explain to me how an engine like this actually works? So the engine, as you can see at the front there, is, is really dominated by this large fan. 80% of the thrust of the engine is generated by that fan. Um, you might consider that the engine is almost pulling itself um, through the sky, sucking tremendous volumes of air through itself and, and pushing them out the back. Roughly the equivalent of a squash court full of air that's being pulled through that engine every second. It's not just this huge fan blade on the front, though. I can see that it gets a bit smaller in the middle and then there's lots of other smaller blades inside. What are they doing? The rest of the engine is to generate the power that's needed to propel that fan at the front. The air is being pulled into the front of the engine and packed down tighter and tighter and tighter. And then we go and add some fuel and we light a match. So that really tightly compressed, energy-rich air is filled with even more energy from the fuel and from the ignition, and that energy is then released as that air rushes out through the turbines at the back of the engine. How hot does it get in the middle of this thing? The turbine blades in the high-pressure system of this engine, they're sitting and working in an environment that's actually beyond the melting point of their raw material whilst at the same time being subject to forces that are about equivalent to hanging a double-decker bus off the end of each individual one of them. How do you keep a machine like this working optimally for its entire lifetime? It's just a given that this will deliver that tremendous amount of thrust reliably every time that's required of it. We're talking about each engine accumulating 14 million kilometres of distance travelled um, before it's removed from the aircraft for overhaul. Our ability to do that is really supported by the data and the information which we can extract from these engines whilst they're operating. And when Matt talks about extracting data whilst the engines are operating, he quite literally means whilst they're flying you on holiday. On the side of the engine is a small grey box that collects information from sensors all over it, and that box beams this information back to the nerve centre at Rolls-Royce in Derby. Hi, I'm Nick Ward. I'm the product manager for Equipment Health Monitoring. That's the remote monitoring of the engines. We have 12,000 engines actually coming into a, a global data centre. We're looking at the temperatures of the operation, the speeds of the shafts, the pressure drops between different stages. All of that data is then coming through to us as, as individual parameters measuring each flight. That then goes into a system where we're looking at what does it all mean and are there things of interest we want to see in the data and then alert people like Matt in the operations centre to take some action. Why do you need to collect so much data? If you want to look at this from the airline's point of view, they want to concentrate on putting passengers on aircraft, putting pilots on aircraft and flying them. That's, that's how they make money. They would like to give the responsibility of looking after the complicated engineering elements to somebody else. You're letting the airlines get on with the job that they do best, which is shifting people around, and, and you're getting on with the job that you do best, which is making the world-leading engines. Exactly. If you notice some data points which aren't quite what you'd hope for in mid-flight, what do you do then? We look to see whether there are any spikes in any of those parameters, anything which might be moving upwards or moving downwards unexpectedly. We call those things features inside the data. We collect a number of those features together, and they might represent a symptom. A number of those symptoms will then form a diagnosis, very much the same as you go to a GP. You're taking the temperature of the engine, you're looking to see, well, if the temperature's going up and I'm hot and sweaty, then maybe my diagnosis is there's, there's a flu. It's very similar on an engine. The diagnosis is then passed on to the operation centre here, and Matt will take that information, and all of that information then leads us to make a decision. Is it something that we, we want to take action on? Should we schedule an inspection? Maybe send a camera down inside and, and see whether we can get a bit more information. Send a camera down inside the engine? That sounded intriguing, so I spoke to Matt back at the engine to find out more. 
a simple way to think about this is actually to relate it to some of the um, medical practices which are pretty commonplace now. Um, so if a doctor decides that he wants to take a look inside you, um, he doesn't come straight in with a knife and open you up. So a more common approach these days would be to introduce a camera, uh, an endoscope. So in our industry, we refer to these as boroscopes. Um, and if you look right underneath the engine here, um, you can see some of these ports here. So where we've potentially seen something in a data trigger that might want us to take a look in the engine and, and check how everything's going, um, we'd be able to remove one of these ports and introduce a camera deep into the insides of the engine and actually see what's going on. If we were to find some damage from something that had been sucked in through that tremendously powerful fan at the front, we've got the ability to actually take positive action to remove that damage, possibly with the use of laser techniques or more traditional mechanical techniques, so that we can get the engine back to its full health and deliver reliable performance performance for the life of the engine. Philip Garces speaking with Matt Burns and earlier Nick Ward. They're both from Rolls-Royce. Sounds like you had a fascinating time and an endoscopy for an engine. I couldn't resist the medical analogy. Yes, it's absolutely amazing that some of the technology that people use to look inside people in medical settings are actually also used uh, in a very similar way in engineering. And the thing that really struck me about the whole um, whole place was just how the sheer scale of it, how it was necessary to bring in data from across the world. And I w- walked into this control room where there was a screen with uh, a map of the world and data about engines and planes all in flight and teams and teams of people all keeping an eye on the data just to make sure that everything was ticking along just nicely. Do they actually run the engine with the camera in there or is it a question of you thread the camera in and then you just turn the engine over to inspect the components? The camera's there if they decide that they want to have a bit of a closer look because these things are so complicated that actually taking it off the wing and taking it to pieces is a, a really big ask. And so these are just used when they've had a, seen something in their data and they just want to have a quick look and check that everything's okay and maybe decide if anything more um, substantial is required. Fascinating. Philip, thank you very much. Philip Gar said. We've seen how we can ensure the health of a plane and its passengers by keeping a watchful eye on its mechanical components. But what about the health of the passengers themselves? By air, you can travel around the world in much less than 80 days nowadays, and that means that any infectious nasties you caught on holiday could spread easily and quickly across the globe too. We're joined now by infectious disease expert Stephen Riley from Imperial College London. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Kat. How are you doing? So tell me, for starters, what do we know about how air travel can spread diseases? Is it really a terrible culprit in terms of spreading global disease? I think from some of the recent high-profile outbreaks, if you go back to SARS or the 2009 pandemic and even the recent Ebola epidemic, I think we can be pretty confident that those long-range, the initial long-range infection events are coming on airplanes. How do we know that they actually are? How do you pin them down instead of just going, oh, they must be, it's popped up here, it's popped up there, it must have come on a plane? So there's a a few different ways that it's been looked at, Um, particularly with some of these infections that where almost everybody that gets infected turns out to have symptoms. Um, We we have a lot of case-based data. You know, we can trace the original roots of the SARS um, of the SARS epidemics through particular hotels in Hong Kong and then flights that went out to Canada. So even that traditional epidemiology can, can trace a lot of these events back. Um, and then beyond that, when the numbers start to get a little bit bigger, we can do some fairly straightforward calculations. And, and we look, you know, we, from the airline data, we know where people travel. So we can make predictions about where the cases are likely to pop up and when they're likely to pop up. And, and generally, they work pretty well. Are there any diseases that are more or less likely to spread? I mean, we heard so much about the Ebola outbreak, uh, but you've mentioned SARS as being more of a problem. Are there particular diseases that really like to, to get on a plane and go? There's quite a bit of evidence out there about influenza um, and that that does you know, spread around the world on planes and that it does also... Um, manage to infect people whilst they're actually on the plane. Um, and there's, you know, there's some good uh, work on some of the bacterial pathogens as well. But it's it's difficult to know because it's it's so subject um, to to what scientists choose to study. And the key thing is really, I go on planes occasionally. Lots and lots of our listeners, I'm sure, do travel by air. How much of a risk is it that diseases or even major outbreaks will be spread? And what can we do to prevent, you know, protect ourselves? There's a lot of good evidence from those early stages that that, that is when uh, diseases will spread, but that's not going to affect 
the most of us, the vast majority of time. Um, you know, public health authorities they recommend the the standard procedures for protecting yourself from respiratory infections, so regular effective hand washing um, and things like that. So the really difficult question is, you know, how much more risky is it to be on a plane on any given day than to do some other activity in your life? And that's, that is a very difficult question to answer. So is it more more dangerous to be on a plane than, say, on the London Underground Tube? I mean, London's a huge melting pot for the world. That's right. And these are the types of questions that we are trying to get into now. You know, it, it boils down to some really interesting stuff about routes of transmission. So, and that's, you know, it's very disease specific. But again, for influenza, how much of it is really aerosol? You know, if someone sneezes in a tube train, do you really have a risk of getting flu from that person? Or is it, you know, the, that they don't use a handkerchief properly and it, and it goes via the, the door um, to your office? Those are the questions that there's a lot of work going into trying to answer that. Um, so that we can, you know, we can think about quantifying those specific risks. We've only had these kind of means of travel for you know, a few hundred years, and before that, there was ships and people travelling around the world. But really, in terms of human history, we've not been super mobile, and suddenly we're spreading all these viruses and, and pathogens all over the place. Should we be concerned about this? I think there's lots of evidence all the way back through human history. Um, that as we become, as we live in more dense populations and as we become more connected, that we do enable the spread of disease. There's, there's great evidence um, from archaeological findings and, and careful analysis of how smallpox, you know, originated um, in kind of northern Africa and then into Europe and, you know, didn't actually reach the Americas until the, until the Europeans started going over there regularly. So these things have been happening throughout history. And we don't know that, you know, maybe we've we've been through all the bad ones or most of the bad ones. So, you know, it's it's not clear that it's definitely a negative, but there's there's lots of examples of how, you know, the increasing density with which we live, which are you know, our cities are designed and our better connectivity, it does allow new things in. One of the things that my friends and I sometimes joke about is if we go on a plane, we always feel a bit grotty afterwards. We call it plane flu. Um, is there actually anything intrinsically unhealthy about being locked up in a in an aeroplane cabin? Is is this true that people do tend to get sick after flying? Um, I'm not sure how good the evidence is that you get that you're at much higher risk. I think um, if someone around you has just become infectious with a respiratory pathogen and they're coughing a lot, um, then you know, there's, there's good evidence that you don't want to be in the two seats very close to them. Sharing a row or sharing two rows is not so great either. Further away than that's a little bit better. Um, so there's there's some knowledge about that. But um, it, I mean, I, it's not entirely my area, but um, I'm sure just, you know, being at a lower pressure and getting a bit dehydrated and feeling a bit dried out probably makes us all feel a bit grotty after a very long flight. Cool. So good advice there. Wash your hands and don't sit next to the person snuffling everywhere. Thanks very much. That's Stephen Riley from Imperial College London. If it's your kids or your wife, you could be cruising for a bruising anyway then, Kat, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's horrible being ill on a plane. Ugh. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, you're up in a plane, cruising along at altitude, all systems are normal. But above the clouds everything looks pretty much the same. So how do other people know where we are? How do we know where we are? And how do we know where we're going and what lies ahead? More importantly, how do we avoid crashing into something? The answer is radar. It's a system that uses radio waves to detect the presence, the direction, distance and speed of aircraft and other things. Ramsey Farragher from the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory has his very own radar, as you do, to demonstrate how this crafty system works. Did you like what I did there, Ramsey? <laughs> very clever, Chris. So tell us about what a radar actually is and how it works. So a radar system creates a very carefully crafted pulse of electromagnetic radiation that's very powerful, but very short in time. And it pings this pulse out and then sits there quietly and waits to hear for the ping to bounce off things and come back. And the only reason this works is because the speed of light, while very, very fast, is thankfully not infinite. Um, so you can time how long it takes for an echo to come back to you and then easily work out uh, how far away something is. But radars have a big challenge. They spray this radiation out um, into the world and it will bounce off trees, buildings, wind turbines, any old object, hopefully the odd aircraft if that's what it's supposed to be detecting. 
But a radar has to deal with all of these reflections coming back and unpick what it's interested in. And so there's a few things that radars can do in order to make sure it's just tracking the aircraft. And so we can demonstrate one of these here in the studio, uh, one of these methods um, of tracking just what you're interested in. So I've got a little radar with me that's about the size of a mobile phone. It has two little antennas that are about the size of your thumb. One of those antennas does the transmitting and the other one does the receiving. And it's going to spray radiation out into this studio and it'll bounce around all over the place. Um, but we've done something very clever so that it only tracks Phil, your producer. And we'll demonstrate that in a moment. I'm slightly concerned that it's tracking him at the level of his crotch. Is there, <laughs> is there any damage that could be done to uh, a personage not, from exposure to not, radar energy? Uh, not, at these, <laughs> not at these power levels. No, that's OK. He, he may experience be, a warming he sensation. He will be absolutely fine. <laughs> um, OK, so you're going to ask him to start in one position and then move. What yes. are we going to be hearing on the radio? So I've rigged up the laptop so that when the radio pulse is sent, the laptop makes this beeping sound. So that's the pulse being sent out in all directions around the room. Yeah. So as soon as we hear that, we can imagine that we need to listen for a, a pulse to return. And if we time how long it takes, we'll work out how far away things are. And so that it's easy to hear when the return pulse has come back, it sounds slightly differently. So this is the sound that the laptop will make when it receives the pulse back again. So it's slightly lower in pitch. So if I start the system going, you'll hear the beep and then the boop, the high pitch and the low pitch. And you'll hear them quite close together because Phil is starting very close to the radar. Yeah, he's about a foot away from your radar emitter, isn't he? So yeah. start it off then. And if Philip could start walking backwards across the room, away from the radar source... So now there's a clear gap between the two. And if Phil hurries back over, the gap will be very small again. There so it's using the time it takes, the reflections to come back, and it knows how fast light travels. And therefore it can work out how long the light has been travelling to go to Philip and back to the receiver. And therefore it works out what the distance is. That's One right. problem I can spot with this, though, is it doesn't know whether he is that distance away in a horizontal across the room or almost on top of the radar device but vertically above it so it doesn't actually have any idea of what sort of angle he's at relative to it does it that's right so the radar is very very good at measuring velocity it's okay at measuring range but it's not very good at measuring angles so yes there was no measurement really that i was making there that could tell me the angle around to the sides or up and down that Philip was to the radar. And Is that that's why air traffic has corridors where they, they know they put aeroplanes in certain altitude blocks and then they know a pulse coming back from there must correspond to uh, a, a ping back from that angle at that corridor? Yeah, so a radar that's used for air traffic control typically rotates um, in the horizontal plane so it kind of sprays out the radiation along the compass bearings, if you like. Um, and that's how it tries to determine your heading. But... The altitude you're at, is, that's very hard for the radars to distinguish. And um, what, what they do to get around that problem is that a transponder in the aircraft, which is a radio receiver that um, emits information as soon as it hears that it's hit by the, radio, the, the radar pulse, um, those transponders, uh, they broadcast the identity of the aircraft and they broadcast its altitude and sometimes some other information as well. Do they that, fire off when they see the radar pulse come in then? So it's listening for the pulse to arrive and it says, aha, someone's pinging my aeroplane and it then sends back a signal going, here I am, and announces itself. Yeah, that's right. So as soon as the radar pulse comes back, it comes back with this extra radio information that's transmitted on a different frequency from the aircraft that contains identity and height and, and often some other information too. Are there uh, any ways that we can track aircraft in addition to using radar? Because we've had a number of high-profile cases recently of aircraft disappearing and then being either impossible to locate or there being a significant delay before they were found. And, and then everyone goes hunting for black boxes, which we'll find out about later. Is there any better way of keeping tabs on where planes are in the sky? So there is a big push at the moment to replace what we call primary radar systems, which is literally spraying electromagnetic radiation out from the airports, replacing those primary systems with secondary systems. And one of those secondary systems is the use of GPS on board the aircraft. 
So the aircraft simply record their GPS information and then broadcast it over a radio channel. And this uh, te- this technology is called ADS-B. It's being uh, rolled out on um, large aircraft and even small aircraft like gliders will carry ADS-B with transmitters now as well. So um, that has drastically reduced the costs associated with tracking aircraft. And it means that if a system fails, it fails just on that aircraft and just that aircraft needs um, uh, for its system to be replaced. Where, of course, if the primary radar went down at Heathrow, then it would drastically affect hundreds of aircraft. Um, so it's a great way of reducing the costs and spreading the risk of, uh, of a problem. Sounds encouraging. Ramsey, thank you. That's Cambridge University's Ramsey Farragher. Now, we've talked so far about how we look after the health of the mechanical components of the plane, how we keep a watchful eye on its flight, and how we look after the health of passengers and the wider population. But what about the effects of flying on the health of our planet? With us to discuss this is Douglas Crawford-Brown. He's director of the Cambridge Centre for Climate Change Mitigation Research. Hi, Douglas. Oh, hello. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, So tell me, to start with, how big is the environmental impact of aviation? Is it a real plan? no-no. What sort of impact are planes having on our climate? Well, three quick points on it. At the moment, it's only a couple of percent, two to three percent of the carbon dioxide that's emitted around the world um, on average. Uh, But if you look at somebody like myself, and we'll come to that in just a bit, um, it's probably 50 percent, 60 percent of my carbon footprint. Um, But also, as we start to reduce carbon dioxide from other things like our electricity system and so forth, uh, air transport will start to become an even larger larger percentage than it is today. Uh, Air transport does seem to have uh, a reputation as being a baddie of the climate world. How does it stack up against other forms of transport? Yeah, it, it's not actually so bad. So we'll, we'll take my case, for example. Uh, the problem with it is not that I ride on an airplane. In fact, in the places that I go to, I would emit more carbon if I were to get into a car or to get onto a bus and go to those places. Uh, the problem is that I go tens of thousands of kilometers flying around the world to teach people to reduce their carbon footprint. And I say Peter and I can discuss that at some point. There's got to be an irony in that. Um, I mean, is it is it just that this is what we have to put up with to live in a global world? Is there any way that we could actually improve planes to reduce this kind of impact on the planet? We, we could, but but first off, I would say that the, the, the greenest travel is the travel that you don't make at all because you didn't need to in the first place. And so things like telecommuting are starting to replace the need to be getting onto airplanes or into cars. Um, but also what really matters is how many people you're packing into an airplane or a car or a bus or what what have you. Pack enough people people onto an airplane, put them into economy, don't let them go into first class, and they will be emitting less than they would have if they'd gotten onto a car or onto a bus, not less than if they'd gotten onto a train, though. Uh, that, that may make some people in first class unhappy, but I'm sure the rest of us in cattle class will feel a bit more virtuous. I mean, I, I fly to Canada to visit my sister sometimes, and I think, well, maybe I should offset my carbon. You know, what should we do? do does these kind of schemes make any difference? The only thing that really makes a difference is just not getting onto the plane to begin with. But um, uh, offsetting, I'm, I'm really torn on offsetting. There's no doubt that, that one can plant trees and this will pull some of the carbon dioxide out. The problem that we have is that the CO2 that you're emitting from your airplane travel is being emitted immediately. But the CO2 that's going to come out as a result of the tree is going to come out over the next 50 years or so. And what matters is not just the amount of CO2 that we take out of the atmosphere, but how quickly we do it. So I'm not a big fan of offsetting. I know. Are there any realistic strategies that could be used in the immediate or the very near-term future to reduce the, the carbon impact of flying? Uh, well, the engineers look a lot at the efficiency of the of the engines, the 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 drag on the surface of the airplane, and so forth. Uh, but that we've gotten to the point now where we've pretty much done all of those improvements, and therefore, what really is the next step is moving towards fuels that don't emit as much CO two. So something like biofuels moving into the aviation industry. We're not there yet for for biofuels. We can't produce enough of them at the moment, but um, that certainly is a, a solution. 
And do you think we will see carbon neutral aviation or even do you think that people will seriously stop flying or reduce their flights anytime soon? Yeah, I I mean, I I, I don't think we're ever, certainly in my lifetime, which doesn't say much given my age, um, in my lifetime, I don't think we'll ever see um, carbon neutral uh, air travel. Um, But certainly in my son's lifetime, there's a possibility that uh, at least we'll have air travel that's down by a factor of two or three lower in emissions than is currently the case today. I, again, I don't think we'll ever we'll ever hit the zero carbon. And in terms of things like policy, we're talking about maybe expanding one of the two big airports in the south of England. Is this should we be looking to have more flights, but they're more efficient, or should we be looking just to curb our love for the skies? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, there are reasons that people fly around. I have reasons that I fly around um, and I like it quite a bit. Um, but there's there's no doubt that we're going to be reaching a limit to the number of people who can be traveling anymore in the in the future by air. And therefore, I think we'll be cutting back on at least the rate of expansion of, of airports. But it's an important economic component of the of the UK, for example. So that's going to be a tough battle to fight with the Treasury. I think for now, I will still go and visit my sister in Canada. Thank you very much. That's Douglas Crawford-Brown from Cambridge University. Thanks also to our other studio guests this week. We've had Ramsey Farragher and Stephen Riley. And finally, we're taking to the skies once again to answer this question of the week with Heather Douglas. How do black boxes work? When a plane crashes, there's always a huge search for the elusive black box to solve the mystery. The, I suppose, Sherlock Holmes of the airline world? But what is this cryptic contraption? Is it as clever as we think? And is it even black? I put this to David Barry, Senior Lecturer in Aviation Safety from Cranfield University. Black boxes are about the size of two shoeboxes and actually painted bright orange. There are usually two types on board an aircraft. The first is the cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, which records the conversations between pilots, communications between the pilots and air traffic control, and ambient noises on the flight deck, such as engine sounds and warning alarms. The second is the flight data recorder, or FDR. The FDR records information about what the aeroplane is doing. Things like speed, altitude, whether the autopilot's on, whether the seatbelt sign is on, and hundreds of other parameters. Ah, of course there are two orange boxes on board. What would Sherlock be without his trusty sidekick Watson? But how does Sherlock and Watson compare to this CVR-FDR combo? The boxes themselves aren't actually very clever. In fact, a typical smartphone will have a much higher memory capacity than a black box. And the winner is... Sherlock and Watson! However, would you expect to be able to read your emails on your phone if you just held it at a wall at 400 miles an hour, crushed it under 2,000 kilograms, fried it at 1,100 degrees centigrade for an hour, and then baked it in your oven for 10 hours? Oh, and then for good measure, dropped it in the sea... No, and I don't suspect Sherlock would solve many mysteries after that either. To withstand this punishment, the memory in the recorders is surrounded by a one-inch thick layer of dry silicon material to protect from high temperatures, which is then encased in a quarter-inch thick stainless steel or titanium housing. Hang on. Why can't the entire plane be made of this indestructible duo? The trouble is that all this protection weighs quite a bit. Black boxes weigh around 7 kilos, so pretty dense for their size. And if the whole aeroplane was made out of those materials, it would never get off the ground. That would prevent a few crashes. In the future, it's likely that data will be streamed in real time back to airline operators via satellites. But there'll still be a need for black box recorders on board to ensure investigators have uninterrupted and complete data in case any data gets lost during transmission back to base. Thank you, David, for taking us on the flight of a lifetime. Next week, we answer Alana Christie's question. If I landed on a gassy planet, would I sink to the car? If you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or get stuck into the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Philip Garsed for his help with the production. And in closing, can we ask for your help? Because we're running a survey about the Naked Scientist programme so we can continue to improve them. It takes less than five minutes and we would be very grateful for your opinions you can find that survey at nakedscientist.com slash survey meanwhile do please join us next week for a delve into the mailbag we're taking on your science questions so send them in now if you have one it's chris at nakedscientist.com the naked scientist comes to you from cambridge university it's supported by rolls royce the stfc and the epsrc 
My name is Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>